Most people are eating when food's available, they're bored, everyone else is eating. Very rarely do we eat because of true hunger. And when you get back in touch with true hunger, it's very empowering because all of a sudden you also learn not to overeat. You're listening to the Fitness Industry Podcast, powered by Australian Fitness Network. For articles, resources, and inspiration to grow your fitness business and career, go to fitnessnetwork.com.au, where you can also find a huge range of online courses, many of them accredited for CECs and other professional development credits, with up to a massive 30% saving for members of Australian Fitness Network. Susie Burrell is one of Australia's leading dietitians. Here, she chats with the Fitness Industry Podcast's Oliver Kitchingman about the impact of the pandemic on dietary behaviours, offsetting weekend eating habits, ensuring that dietary approaches are always tailored to the individual, and why we can all benefit from going light on Sunday night. Susie, welcome to the Fitness Industry Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to see you again after all these years. Susie, you've been working in the, the nutrition, the, diet, the dietary and fitness industries for several years now. Can you give us a little sort of rundown of your time in the industry? I like several. That's nice. Makes me feel younger than I am. <laughs> it's been about 20 years and I originally trained as a dietitian. I also have done some studies in coaching psychology. So I spend a lot of my time still working with clients. I think that's really important when people are writing and commentating on nutrition that they have some client contact because, of course, we learn so much every day from our clients. So I still consult in Sydney and see a lot of clients for fat loss and hormonal conditions like polycystic ovaries and insulin resistance. And then the, the other bulk of my work really now is on content development. So whether it's consulting to some food industry clients or whether it's content for the um, newspapers, magazines, still writing. And I still work as the the dietitian on Channel 7 Sunrise. So I do lots of different things, but it's really focused on sort of practical nutrition strategies for busy people. My average client is someone who's going to the gym regularly, they're training and they're looking for for nutrition solutions to match their busy lifestyle. And so that's that's a blessing. We're talking about dietary strategies for busy people. 2020 threw everyone a curveball. Busy people found themselves busy in different ways, I guess, just with a complete change of routines. How has 2020 affected a lot of your clients and well, in fact, the whole general population's sort of eating behaviours? I think there was two phases. I think there was kind of the chaotic phase where people were out of routine and suddenly they found themselves working at home, not going to their gyms as often, in front of the fridge 24 hours a day and a victim of the COVID kilos for want of a better description. And then I think we sort of had that realisation that we actually had more time now and it was time to get back to basics spend a lot more time at home cooking home prepared meals, get back in touch with our calorie controlled eating and and moving more as part of our day to day and actually having to factor that in when we're working at home. So I don't think it's been a bad thing. I think for a lot of us, we've had to reevaluate some of our life choices. And for many of us, we've got more time available to to us. And that gives people more time to concentrate on self-care, which inevitably comes down to building a strong nutrition platform and also looking at how much they're moving and, and how active they are and how they can incorporate that into 
their life when perhaps they're not commuting and not moving as much. It was also really good because Australian food has done amazing and a few of my food industry clients are excited because a lot more people are cooking at home and preparing food at home. So that's meant there's been a real opportunity to work with food companies to promote you know, healthy Australian food. So that's been fantastic as well. Well, as we've resumed a more normal existence and people are getting back into some semblance of their previous routines, do you think that any of the lessons that were learned during COVID are likely to stick with us in terms of prioritising health and the the importance of, of good health and movement, including a healthier diet? Or are we likely to sort of, you know, slip back into past behaviours? In the near future, whilst we're so limited with travel and a lot of us are really homebound, I think those habits are able to be sustained. I find with my clients that when there are more and more time demands on them, that's when health and fitness can take the back seat, even though they may not want it to. It's just the pressures of life. So whilst there's less cars on the road, whilst people are doing more hours at home, while we can't travel as much, I think we're good. I think that when the demands of regular life kick back in, whether it's in a year, two years, five years, that's when we'll start to see us in the frenzy that we once were. But I think we've got some time on our side to play with that. And the more time we have, the more time we do have to spend at home looking after ourselves, factoring health and fitness and inevitably preparing meals at home. And the more we have control over our nutrition, the better it is. What we know is that when we you know, buy our food away from the home, from food courts, ordering in, that's when things go wrong because food in those environments is so much more calorie dense than anything we buy in the supermarket. So from my perspective, it's good at the moment because clients are generally eating out less than they ever did and and spending less time in food courts, which is great for me. And I think, as I said, we've got probably a year or two of time to really embrace that before the full speed of, of busy life picks up again. It felt like earlier on when we were actually experiencing prolonged lockdown, a lot of people were ordering in. A lot of people were Ubering in their lunches, their dinners and, and things like this, possibly because at that time people were maybe more reluctant to be going out and shopping. And it was, I don't know, maybe it was the new the new reality we all found ourselves in. People were just sort of, you know, getting on board that uh, <laughs> that new way of doing things. But as you, you say that you think that's probably dropped off now and people, it may have been a bit of a fad in the earlier days, but hopefully it's not prolonged. Well, I think there's two factors. One, it's really expensive. You know, you're looking at at least $20 for a single meal for people. And I think it's definitely for a long time, particularly around lunches, it was a younger person's thing to order in Uber Eats. My husband works in the media and he still says at the television station, the young he calls them the young ones, you know, the younger employees will order their Uber Eats for lunch, which he would never think of doing. So it's part of that generation. But absolutely, in the early days, we were all Ubering a lot more. Now, the issue I have is the calories tend to be double any food you prepare at home. So even if you're choosing the healthier options, because a lot of the menu items are fast and fried food, you know, it always comes up with what you can have as the extra. This is the bonus. The food looks so appealing that you're visually drawn into it. So you think, oh, yeah, I'll have some extra cheesy garlic bread with my pizza. So the kinds of foods, the energy density of those foods and the extras just add up to a complete calorie overload. And then on top of that, it's how much extra we spend on it without even realizing because we don't transfer any money. It's all at the click of a button. We're all guilty of it. So the best advice I have for my clients is try and limit the occasions in which you do that. So at most kind of once a week for those meals, because they're really cost ineffective and they're also just so high in calories like it's not equivalent of something you would ever prepare at home so if weight control is the key and then on top of that weight loss you're going to really 
struggle if you're ordering in food away from the home, you know, multiple occasions each week. So I think we need to be really clear on that. It's not the same as preparing food at home. And from a health perspective, there's concerns around things like the oils used in restaurants and, and chains. You know, it's not extra virgin good quality olive oil. It's processed vegetable oil. And when you're in, indulging in those kind of meals multiple times each week, that has a profound effect on your baseline nutrition intake over time. And I think we need to be more transparent around that and not act as if because it looks healthy on on a meal delivery it actually is that you couldn't be further from the truth i mean there are a million dietary approaches out there susie and a lot of them seem to involve removing certain food groups or focusing almost exclusively on others what's your take on these well the first thing i'd say is that any diets work if people follow them so they all work keto works paleo works meal replacements work they all work the issue is that people don't follow them or can't follow them or don't want to because they don't assimilate into regular life. Now, the first, another thing I would say is there's a lot of people who aren't overly qualified giving very specific nutrition advice. So they need something to sell. You know, they need to be off to sell a plan that's simple, you know, whether it's shakes or eliminating this food group or eliminating that group because that's what people lean towards as quick and easy solutions that's what makes money so it's a huge industry the diet industry I don't need to tell you that and I think you know for me I don't have a preference over any diet I I manipulate a diet to suit my client so if I've got a client who keto would suit I have no issue using it but the truth is I have many very few clients who keto works for I get long-term results or they even want to do it so for me it comes back to a person-centered approach and what dietary model will be sustainable long term but the other thing I will say is you can never get around calorie control so you can do any diet you want but if it's too high in calories you won't lose weight so I think we don't need to be scared of calories. We need to be very aware that as people age and as our lives become more sedentary, we burn fewer calories than ever before. And that is basically the issue. You know, we sit, we don't move, we don't burn a lot, or we go to the gym, burn some calories and overcompensate with actually how much we've trained. And at the end of the day, we need to eat far less than we do. You know, the average adult will burn between, say, 1,600, max 2,000 calories a day. It's not a lot to play with really, when you look at a meal breakdown. So it's about fitting that style of diet into calorie control. And inevitably, you know, human beings, we like to eat and we gradually eat far more than we need over time. So it's about retraining and having practical solutions to control calories. So, you know, one of the strategies I'm constantly using with my clients is a balance between their weekday eating and their weekends, because people overconsume to such a huge extent on weekends, whether it's because of eating out, ordering in, alcohol consumption that it inevitably means they need to have calorie controlled options in the weekdays to buffer that response. So, you know, I think let's never forget that at the end of the day, we're machines, machines that burn a certain number of calories, and we're never going to be able to override that with any of our flash diets, no matter how hard we try. So if, I mean, these restrictive diets are unsustainable for most people. So what is a more sustainable approach for healthier eating? I mean, it, you, you talk there about the, you know, you can't get around the, the calorie equation, but how do you make a, how do you create a sustainable way of eating for people where they can achieve that without feeling as though they are, they are suffering by missing out on the things that they enjoy, which is when it becomes unsustainable. Of course, you look at lifestyle and you say, right, does this person need, how often does this person enjoy eating per day? Is this someone who loves to eat constantly? 
or is this someone who is going to benefit from a fasting regime? And it's about developing for me a weekday structure that they can do, you know, five days a week. So what should their first meal be? Should it be breakfast or are they someone who should fast? Do they need to drink coffee, want to drink coffee? How do we incorporate milk-based coffee into that regime? How do we get them eating more fresh food throughout the day and preparing more of their food or knowing how to grab lower calorie options when they're out for lunch and then buffering their meal at night? You know, how late do they eat at night? How big is the meal and how big should it really be? How do we avoid nighttime snacking? How do we factor in eating out and ordering in if they're social? So it's all those behavioural variables that come to forming a meal plan that works for a person. Now, the difference between that and following a diet is that you're not taking into account any of the person's personal preferences food choices the way they like to eat and that's why they don't work so you can grab a keto shape plan follow it but it doesn't fit with your lifestyle if you go out to dinner you don't know what to do and hence you get into that pattern of you're on the diet or you're not whereas a dietitian's approach will generally be tailoring the diet to that so there's not a one-size-fits-all in answer to your question it's about individuals if what I usually see with my clients who are, you know, 30 to 50 year old, busy working people who train regularly, they're usually having a protein rich breakfast in the morning. I try and get them to avoid snacking through the day and have a good hot meal at lunchtime that contains some vegetables because then I know they'll be full all afternoon. A light afternoon snack, usually higher in protein, cheese and crackers, protein bar, nut bars to stop the mindless munching. And then a lighter meal at night in those weekdays because then when it comes to Friday night or it comes to the weekend and they want to order in or they're eating out, they've had a tight calorie control in the weekdays. So that is a general description of what I would see. But it's not everyone. You know, last week I had a 160 kilo male who is doing keto because I need to get 20 to 30 kilos off him quickly. One, because that will keep him motivated, but two, he will respond better to that. 30 to 40% carbohydrate, 30% fats with heaps more veggies because that's a model that's sustainable. It supports weight control. It supports insulin and appetite control. And in food terms, it's easy to follow. You know, you can have eggs for breakfast. You can have a coffee for breakfast. You can grab a, a sandwich or wrap or something for lunch. So it also fits in with easy convenient options through the day so people can do it long term it's easy i mean you you talk about the different approaches for different people obviously you know some as you said all diets work if you stick to them um but the problem is a lot of them aren't sustainable where does i'm guessing therefore that fasting might fit into the equation for some clients as well and how sustainable are people finding that i know obviously intermittent fasting has become fairly high profile probably in the last four or five years is it something that people can stick with beyond the initial few weeks? It's probably the pertinent diet of the moment. And it is also one that has good evidence around it. But what I want to ask the evidence that's important to weight loss, it's in relation to the metabolic variables that benefit from having prolonged periods without food so that is cholesterol blood pressure insulin levels it's actually the weight loss is secondary so if you want to fast to lose weight it's not the right approach you fast for some health benefits and you will get some weight loss as a result in most people now the two models that we hear most about are the 16-8 
where you eat two or three meals within an eight-hour period and have a 16-hour fast overnight and the five and two. Now, in my experience with clients, the 16-8, you get a couple of kilos initially and then I find the weight loss plateaus. I find that extending the fast overnight so you don't eat breakfast is not always the metabolic right thing to do for active people. I find I want my clients hungry in the morning. So I don't want them to be hungry and ignoring it. I want their metabolisms to be pumping. It is true that we'll all benefit from a longer period of time overnight without eating, but I don't agree with extending the fast till lunchtime. The second thing is I get much better results from a fire two, which is two low calorie non-consecutive days. And in particular, I get better results with that with people with metabolic dysfunction. So those with insulin resistance, polycystic ovaries, people who don't feel hungry in the morning. Because what that does, it depletes glycogen stores so people start to feel hungry again. So it's a very powerful way to remind people of actually how little food they need and what it feels like when you actually empty out the digestive system and have a low-calorie day of eating. The trick is you've got to develop a 500-calorie regime that people can follow because there's a lot of psychology around such restrictions. And for people with a history of eating disorders or restrained eating, I don't suggest it. But for people, you need to develop a 500 or 600 calorie program that they're happy to follow. So for example, on mine, I tend to get them to delay the breakfast a bit later and have just a coffee, particularly for people who love coffee, because then they don't feel deprived. Then a light salad for lunch or an omelette with two eggs and veggies, and then a soup or salad for dinner. But there's a lot of psychological toughness that you've got to get through that period. And for some people, it just doesn't suit. Like they find not eating so stressful, it tends to drive binge eating. So again, it's about really making sure you're giving it to the right person. But the other third thing I would say about fasting is that we will all benefit from an extended fast once a week. So usually I say to my clients, you've had a big Saturday night out. Don't eat until you're really hungry lunchtime Sunday. And what that does is help the body process that excessive number of calories before eating again. Or you might do it on a Sunday lunchtime to Monday you know, morning. And that gives you that 16, even longer hours without food, which has been again shown to be very beneficial for our health and longevity. Now, that's not to say you'll lose weight from doing that. It will just say that that is fitting in with the research that shows there's benefits for our cellular health from having extended periods of time without eating. And I call it go light on Sunday night or have a reset day on Monday just to sort of flush out the sins of the weekend. So it's a little strategy I use with clients to, to get through and flush out those extra calories that are inevitably consumed over the weekend. So it really is. It's all about listening to the body. For some people, one system works really well. For other people, it doesn't. It was interesting. Yeah. I think, did, did you mention that you said, for example, people with polycystic ovary syndrome are generally not hungry earlier in the morning, for example? There are eating patterns that are that do correlate with certain medical conditions. Absolutely. So hunger is a really powerful signal. If a client's not feeling hunger, I want to know why. Is it because they're over-consuming at night or is it because their insulin levels are out of control and they have these really fluctuating hunger and fullness signals so they don't often wake up hungry? So it, it's not always the case, but it's just for those individuals who don't wake up hungry and I'm trying to get them hungry, it's a strategy we may use. But I'll always say to my clients, these are the options we've got. We could try this. We could try this. Now, if straight away they find the idea of not eating on a 5-2 very, very stressful, I would never give it to them because they've got to be comfortable with that approach. 
And the same with the 16.8. I'll say I don't get amazing weight loss results with the 16.8. You might get a couple of kilos initially, but it might also get you in touch with your hunger in the morning, which I'd be happy with. So I'm always guided by them and I give the smorgasbord of options. That's my job to have the diet toolkit and then apply it to the right person for them to get the results they're looking for so you can see there's so much individual application and I that's why I always argue I don't have a problem with diets I have a problem of course sustainable but diets aren't bad if they're the right diet for you but you've got to make sure that they are the right diet for you and the best indicator of that is that you're getting the results that you're after and they're the two things we always want to question. Susie you're talking there about the weekend um, strategy which is quite a clever one I feel like there are certain times of the year which feel almost like a prolonged weekend. For example, in, in Australia, in the, in the Southern Hemisphere, we have the Christmas, the New Year break, the, the, the whole summer break. I mean, in Australia, it's pretty much from mid-December until the end of January. Usual rules don't apply. There's a lot of socialising, but that also coincides with, with the time when a lot of people make New Year's resolutions. So people are deciding that they want to eat in a more healthy way at possibly the hardest time of the year to do so. And I feel like in the Northern Hemisphere, New Year's resolutions don't coincide with a summer break. I mean, they, they coincide with, with winter, which may, be, which may present its own challenges in terms of eating or wanting to eat comfort food and, and maybe less movement and physical activity outside. But yeah, is it problematic having this sort of this psychological thing where people want to make New Year's resolutions and they're actually making it harder for themselves by choosing to do it in, in January? It's different strokes for different folks. I think if you're a young millennial out partying every weekend 100%, I would suggest waiting until the beginning of February when life resumes some structure because the ability to eat well and maintain that pattern of eating which is conducive to weight control is heavily dependent on having structure. So when you're back at work and in a relatively normal routine, that's the time to do it. absolutely if you're on holidays it's not a good time for some of my clients who are not partying as much January is good because they have more time so they have time to reflect on what they're doing they have time to do some extra food preparation but I think if you're on holidays and, and indulging you're right it's not the right time and that's the other reason that a lot of people wait until February when kids have gone back to school because again they have the weekday structure so with my own clients that's why in general I focus on weekdays very separate to weekends because in general once holidays are over most of us have structure within that and I I guess off the back of that is if the goal is specifically weight loss and you're embracing a new program you want to be able to commit to it like 99% because what we know from the research is that initial success predicts long-term success. So you want to have that week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, where you can literally give complete focus because then you'll see the results that you're looking for and that will motivate you to keep going. You've done the hard work early. But if you have a situation where you do two good days, then you're off it, then you're back on, you'll never get that consecutive flow to actually get the results you're looking for. And that's where we see that diet cycle, which we want to avoid. So the best time to embrace any regime or in particular a stricter regime is a time you can commit five, seven days, two weeks to it completely. And then you'll get those results and keep going. So that's the other important thing. Susie, you talk there about, I mean, for a lot of clients, of course, weight loss is the key objective for fat loss really i mean in the fitness industry we tend to talk more about fat loss in for the consumer however they do talk about weight loss but what they i mean it is weight because that's an easy measurement to see on the scales whether or not they've lost weight they're you know not as able to easily judge the percentage of fat loss or body fat loss during the overnight or during the week other than 
weight loss, fat loss. What other goals can be useful when it comes to setting nutrition, you know, nutrition challenges? Yeah, the first is just to feel better. If you start eating really well and you get your three to five cups of veggies and salad every day, lean protein at each meal so you've got optimal blood glucose control, adequate dietary fiber coming from veggies or whole grains, within a day or two, you will have your digestive system working more efficiently. You'll drop a bit of fluid that we get from a high salt diet. Your skin will be clearer. You will feel better within a couple of days. And that's the sign I I suggest to my clients. If you feel better, you're on the right track. If you're going to the bathroom every day and and feeling, you know, like you're clearing out everything, you're going to feel better. And if you're feeling hungry regularly and in control of your hunger so you don't have that terrible ravenous hunger all the time or you're never satisfied or you're always searching for something else and craving sugar all that will eliminate very very quickly even before you'll see drops on the scale so that's a sign instantly you're on the right track and the great thing about the human body you know we often talk about all the bad things about it but one of the great things about it is it will respond very quickly when you eat well It only takes a day or two of plenty of salad and vegetables, veggie juice. That's why people feel good after a detox because they just load their bodies up with lots of fresh food that's unprocessed and they feel better. So they think it's working, but it actually is working in the sense that physiologically your body's getting the things it needs to be working optimally. So yeah, that that's the signs you're on the right track. You just feel better each day. You don't feel so tired and gluggy and craving sugar and sluggish, you know, and and that's, as I said, a great thing. So I guess one of the challenges then is is getting clients or getting people to to sort of realise this change in the in the way they feel because it's not something they can actively measure like weight and sometimes we can find it hard to actually to notice changes in our own in the way we feel unless we're kind of prompted to sometimes people might say people might comment oh you see you know you seem you know full of energy or something like this and you might may not have even noticed it yourself is there any sort of mm. strategy that the trainers could use with their clients when it comes to, to that or like whether it's a a daily check-in just a, like a, a text message or a, like how are you feeling like what are your energy levels or this kind of thing Yeah, I've never thought of it like that. I think the thing I ask my clients is, do you feel kind of empty in the morning? Is your tummy feeling a bit flatter? But that's not, as you said, a a scientific measurement. I think, you know, in psychology, we use vitality scales or energy scales, you know, so you can kind of give your rate a rating over time, which might be as simple as out of 10, how did you feel when you woke up this morning? What was your energy like through the day? So I guess that's a little bit of self-reflection. In women, I often talk about how their sleep is and how much sleep do they feel that they need because when our metabolism is not working amazing, we tend to feel sluggish and very, very tired, particularly in the afternoon and early in the evening. We seem to sleep and it doesn't refresh us. So if you wake up feeling refreshed and can rate that, that works quite well. And I think some of the physiological measures we now have, like our Fitbits and our Apple Watches that start to measure things like sleep, and they're easy ways to rank and collect that data over time. And, you know, things like bathroom habits too are are quite powerful in terms of what's happening with your metabolism. You know, if you're going to the bathroom regularly, that tells us that your body's processing your food well. And so that, you know, measures like that. But I think for the sake of trainers, just trying to get some sort of measurement over it, I think just an energy rating out of 10 in the morning and the afternoon or whenever that client might have presented with feeling fatigued. I use them to get a hunger scale for my own clients because I find people don't eat when they're hungry. They eat because food's around or they're bored. So I'll get my clients to rate their hunger out of 10 and I don't want them to eat till they're about an eight of hunger. 
And I find that really powerful because they're like, you know what? I was eating when I was like a five of hunger and really, so I find that helpful as a dietitian. And indeed, trainers might find that as quite a good measure too because they're seeing clients often regularly, touching them with food diaries. So, you know, reminding people to eat only when they're hungry and to stop when they're not completely stuffed but just nicely full, very, very powerful when it comes to regulating calories in a very general way. Absolutely. Look, I, I, I'm sure a lot of us graze and I'm sure I'm sure lockdown didn't help with that in the early days or changes of routine either. Yeah, getting back in touch with understanding what hunger actually is rather than just, oh, I'm not, oh, maybe I'm a bit hungry, but maybe I'm thirsty, but I'm just going to snack on something anyway. Yeah, it's an easy habit, I guess, to fall into, isn't it? And it's, I guess it involves, yeah, a bit of a change of mindset. Well, the biggest predictors of food consumption or specifically discretionary food consumption, so they're all the extras that we don't need, like the biscuits and the lollies and the snacks and the piece of fruit in between meals, is availability. So it doesn't matter how self-controlled you are, if you've got food in front of you, human beings will generally eat it. So I think people feel guilty about it, but you shouldn't feel guilty because it's just what human beings will do. So it's about making it a little bit more difficult to not grab things, particularly in an office or a home office, so you don't keep things on the bench or in easy reach in a fridge or the cupboard so you don't just grab a handful of nuts every time you walk past because that's that mindless munching that, that happens to all of us. And then it's, you know, really reminding, trying to only eat at meal times and then actually waiting till you're genuinely hungry to eat again. It sounds so simple, it's ridiculous, but trust me, most people are eating when food's available, they're bored, everyone else is eating. Very rarely do we eat because of true hunger. And when you get back in touch with true hunger, it's very empowering because all of a sudden you also learn not to overeat because often when we're eating, when we're not hungry, we're basically overeating. And then you wake up empty in the morning and you're like, hang on, I feel lighter, more energized. And that's how it fits to those ratings because you're just getting back in touch with your body and what your body is naturally telling you, which if you don't have metabolic impairment, it is quite different with things like insulin resistance. I do want to stress that. But if your your physiology is strong, you're young, you're fit, you're active, getting back in touch with that is, is such a simple strategy we can all do and it, it really makes a big difference. It's interesting to hear the, yes, only eat when you're hungry, but when you find yourself in a communal or a family setting or situation and you're, you know, you want to have family meals, you want that to be part of, of the way that you, you know, that you live or, you know, if you're a, you live with a, a partner or, you know, a household of people, is there a way of accommodating both of having family meals, which, you know, and there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of research that into, you know, the positives of family meals, but without making yourself eat over it just because it's the family meal time. How do you kind of juggle that? Well, in, you have to differentiate special occasion eating celebration to that run of the meal. So as soon as it's special, it's someone's birthday and you're indulging or once a week to be restrictive, you isolate those and say, you know what, tonight I'm going to enjoy what's on offer. I'm not going to overeat mindlessly and, and throw in four pieces of cake, but I'm going to take and not worry about it. But then that's differentiating adding that, that once or twice a week occurrence from the run of the meal five, six days a week. And that's all you need to do. And the beautiful thing about calorie control most of the time, which inevitably is the weekdays, means that you do you have that freedom on the weekend. But the other trick with that, Ollie, is that if you have had a celebratory meal or something that's got a lot a lot bigger, then my message is then don't eat again till you're really hungry. And in the morning the next day, you probably won't be hungry. 
So don't have your coffee until you're actually hungry at 10 o'clock or 12 o'clock. And that's that buffer effect. And that's where the fasting strategies can work really well with giving people a sustainable option when they do have these larger, more indulgent meals where they want to just eat whatever they want. But then you just flush it out the next day and hopefully do an extra training session. And then you're on track. So you're not dieting, you're not restricting, but you're buffering and learning to manage your choices in life, which may be to, you know, indulge at a family event or celebration a couple of times a week. Susie, where does meal planning come into people's success with it, with any eating eating system? <laughs> obviously, a lot of people, when they start trying to change the way they eat, they'll be looking at what they can't eat, but whereas the focus should probably be more on <laughs> more of what they can eat. I feel like meal planning probably has a fairly important role to play. <laughs> I couldn't say it better myself. One of my mantras is planning is the key to dietary success. One, because it ensures you have the convenient foods available. It means you have a buffer. You know, one of the projects I've been working on is partnering with Lean Cuisine to reinvigorate and redevelop their frozen meals so that people have convenient, high-protein, calorie-controlled meals in the freezer so you can have a breakfast meal or a lunch salad already there so that you can grab it because what we know about human beings is they will eat what's readily available. So if you find yourself hungry without food in the fridge, you'll order Uber Eats 100%. Whereas if you've made that conscious decision to plan your meals, get to the supermarket or order stuff in and know you've got a tasty protein rich lean cuisine in the freezer, you can grab that. So I try and encourage my clients to plan at least half the week. So that Monday to Thursday period of time where you basically know what you're going to be having for breakfast, lunch and dinner. I'm a big fan of using leftovers as well for lunches the next day. It's calorie controlled. It saves money. It's more nutrient dense. And then it's having the backup things like a couple of frozen meals that are really nutritious. And there's huge numbers of varieties in supermarkets now at really good price points. You know, some of the range we've developed are $2, $3 a meal. Like you can't beat that when it comes to budget as well as nutrition. So, you know, allocating that little bit of time each week to do that. Now, the other thing I want to stress, I've just written an article about this. Meal planning doesn't mean you need to spend four hours on the weekend cooking and packaging things up in tiny containers. It doesn't have to be that complicated. It's simply a matter of when you cook, cook for two meals do a shop or order in some supplies each week. So you've got a few frozen meals, you've got your lunch supplies, or you've got a a heavier meal you can take as your lunch. And then getting, making sure you've got your veggies and frozen veggies on hand. So it doesn't have to be that meal prep we see on Instagram where someone's spending four or five hours a day because I don't have that time. I'm sure most of my clients don't either or the interest, but I just make meals go longer when I am cooking, make sure I'm getting to the supermarket for the staples and always having some backups in the freezers, including some meals like a a calorie controlled lean cuisine that I can grab to make healthy eating easier in the week. So then on the weekends, if you want to go out and indulge, you, you know, your baseline diet is strong. Good advice. Good advice. Susie, do you think that in terms of the national population, we're turning the tide on obesity and overweight that's been obviously for many years obesity and overweight levels were increasing i feel like i mean there seems to be different information from different sources saying that maybe the increase in in obesity may have slowed do you feel that the future (laughs) is bright in terms of the way people are going to be eating and looking after their nutrition and health well, that's tough. I don't think so. I think that where we've probably slowed it, my understanding of the data is we've slowed down sort of the number of people becoming morbidly obese. But I see more and more adults sitting in an overweight category. 
So they're not obese, but they're 10, 15 kilos more than they should be. So the classic presentation is someone who looks quite fit, but they're 70, 75 kilos. So they're 10 kilos overweight, you know. So because of busy lifestyles, more sedentary lifestyles and calorie-dense food, you know, 60% of Australian overweight. So I really do dependent on where you live. You know, coastal areas are, are notoriously fitter and leaner, so you don't necessarily see the morbid obesity that you see in, in lower socioeconomic areas. So it's still a problem. It's just that depending on where you live, you might not see it. But definitely the, the percentage of Australian adults who are overweight is not declining. It's the norm, which is sad, but it's the, sad, the norm is more likely. And I think, you know, a classic example of that is anyone who's gone to a school reunion in recent years anyone between the ages of say, you know, 30 and 50, most people you catch up with are overweight. It's rarer to be slim. So I think, yeah, no, not in my experience. Most people struggle with weight in adulthood. There's no danger of any of the fitness industry running out of (laughs) new consumers. No. And whenever you see projections around careers for the future, constantly it comes up dietitians, fitness professionals, psychologists. So even though there's a huge shift towards tech, it doesn't change the fact that we're human and we need to look after our bodies and our minds, even though we get a lot more out of technology because ultimately that means our bodies are sitting down more, not as active as they once were, eating more processed food. So those human-focused careers and professions will remain. So the fitness industry is alive and well and will be for, for a long time, if not forever, I would say, if I was putting my money on it. Susie, thank you very much for speaking with the Fitness Industry Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a great chat, Ollie. Lovely to see you. For a huge range of online courses for fitness professionals, many of them accredited for CECs and other continuing education points, go to the network website and select the courses tab. Network members save up to 30%. So head to fitnessnetwork.com.au today to grow your skill set and fitness career.